Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Tuvi Rautio, and I am one of the hosts of the channel. And on the podcast today, we have Nicholas Bartlett, who is Assistant Professor of Contemporary Chinese Culture and Society at Bernard College, Columbia University. Nicholas is here to talk about his new book, Recovering Histories, Life and Labor After Heroin in Reform-Era China, published in 2020 by University of California Press. In his book, Nicholas Bartlett writes about heroin when it first reached Guizhou, a Chinese city in southern Yunnan, known as Tin Capital in the 1980s. Widespread use of the drug, which was for a short time period, became easier to buy than vegetables, coincided with radical changes in the local economy caused by the marketization of the mining industry. More than two decades later, both the heroin epidemic and the mining boom are often discussed by, beside one another as recent history. In Nicholas Bartlett's long-term ethnographic research, he finds that middle-aged, long-term heroin users complain that they feel stuck in an earlier moment of the country's rapid reforms, navigating a world that no longer resembles either the tightly lit Maoist work units of their childhood or the disorienting but opportunity-filled chaos of their early careers. Overcoming addiction in Guizhou has become inseparable from broader attempts to reimagining laboring lives in a rapidly shifting social world. Drawing on more than 18 months of fieldwork, Nicholas Bartlett explores how individuals' varying experiences of recovery highlight shared challenges of inhabiting China's contested presence. His work is an important intervention contributing to cultural and medical anthropology and to the wider field of Chinese studies. We will be discussing these chapters in more detail with Nick, who we have the pleasure of joining us on the show today. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Subi. Thanks so much for having me. So I'd like to begin the show by asking you about your background and how you grew to be interested in doing research on heroin use and recovery in China. Sure. Um, so I first lived in China in um, 2000 uh, after college and spent a year there actually researching table tennis, which uh, <laughs> doesn't have a direct doesn't have a direct link, although actually in some ways sort of mental health challenges of the young would-be professional table tennis um, players who I was spending time with. Actually, there, there, I think that there are some connections and themes that kind of draw across the years. But anyway, I spent a year um, there out of college learning the language and, and beginning to do some very preliminary research. And then um, I got a job uh, a, a couple of years later working for um, an HIV prevention project um, where it was the British government giving uh, this bilateral project with China um, funding a range of prevention HIV prevention activities. Um, and I spent a year on that project uh, and began to have contact with quote-unquote high-risk groups um, and actually almost no contact with my role at the time, um, although we frequently 
were talking about drug use and injecting drug users in reports. I had almost no contact with, with people with heroin use history um, who were at the, mo- at the time sort of playing a key, a key role in this broader um, epidemic. Uh, and so uh, after that year, um, I sort of in subsequent uh, trips to China, I, I specifically became interested in the issue of, of heroin use. And um, returned in a number of different sort of shorter term research roles, working on qualitative studies, looking at heroin use, um, and specifically within a public health context. So this is applied research, sort of thinking about primarily HIV transmission. Um, And then uh, right as the sort of, I decided to get a PhD in medical anthropology. And the year before I entered that program, I began working at as a consultant for the International Harm Reduction Development Program at Open Society uh, Foundation. So um, I was a consultant trying to find grantees, uh, and specifically uh, in China. And one of the types of grantees I was looking for were specifically people with heroin use history. And so it was through that work as within public health, sort of helping to try to find and develop uh, groups run by people with heroin use history. That was how um, I became. I met the people involved in this book, and gradually, this this project took shape from 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 that applied work. And how did you get involved with um, Gujo? Could you tell us a bit about your field site, providing a brief kind of overview on on the location and its history of heroin abuse? Sure. So, so I in two thousand two or three, I, I remember hearing about Gujo. Um, we had uh, activities in Yunnan, so so the broader this. China-UK bilateral project had Sichuan and Yunnan were the were the provinces um, where they were operating, and so um, I remember hearing about Guizhou in two thousand two or three as a place with very high rates of uh, injecting drug use and also um, high HIV prevalence. So it became an early site where there were a lot of HIV projects. Um, and in the New York Times a couple of years later, it was mentioned as this sort of early best practice. Um, for China's response to the epidemic, because there were so many different um, different types of interventions that were targeting uh, at-risk populations. But I didn't actually go there until 2008, um, and it was through uh, contacts with uh, partners in China that sort of um, I was introduced to a group, including this figure, Yan Jin, actually was the first person I ever met from, from Guizhou, and I met him in, in Beijing, where he was... Um, sort of undertaking a residency um, as an activist and sort of learning about um, civil society from from a, a local NGO there that sort of worked with uh, grassroots NGOs around the country. And so I met him then, and then I visited uh, sort of Gujo to assess the work that was happening there with this network of uh, organizations that were run by people with drug use history. So, so that was how I arrived there. And the city itself, I, I mean, I think you mentioned it, it's, it's known as Tin Capital, the, the biggest tin producer in the world. So it's a mining city, but it's also mm. quite beautiful. It's also known as Little Hong Kong. Um, and it has sort of, it's in the mountains and in some ways quite isolated, but also it's it's really wealthy. I mean, there was a, a Lacoste store there when I arrived. There's sort of these high-end retail, un- sort of uh, retail in- industry catering to this wealthy elite. Um, and then there's also just, it has the feeling of, a place that has been, you know, a mining center for for many decades, um, and so it was quite. Although I didn't 
really understand the importance of mining when I started the project. That as I got there, it really became clear how important the trajectory of uh, the opening of mining to particular actors at particular moments, how important that was for understanding both who ended up using heroin and also experiences of recovery. Yeah, and this mention of the mountain—I mean, the mountain—is this continuous backdrop in your writing. You start, you start your book with Oldian Mountain, and you end the book uh, returning again to the mountain. But just for um, some listeners who might not be familiar with ge- Chinese geography or this region of China um, in in general, could you kind of locate where Gujun is, um, kind of on on the on a wider kind of geographical map? Sure. So just to to understand the kind of. Um, trade of, of or the kind of transportation of heroin to this to this region. Sure. Yes. So so it's it's in southern Yunnan. So it's about five hour bus ride south of Kunming, the capital of Yunnan. And so it's very close to uh, Burma and or actually the, the, it, Vietnam is is the country that it's closest to. It's about um, less than a hundred miles away from the Vietnamese border. Um, and heroin produced in the Golden Triangle, primarily in Burma, is coming into Yunnan in the sort of late 1980s and 1990s. And Yunnan is uh, a key place that is uh, sort of a a transport hub for heroin going other parts of uh, the country. But also it has some of the earliest and most intense use of heroin, specifically in that sort of early period where the borders are opening up, say, in the early to mid 80s and just enormous amounts of, of the drug are, are, are pouring into various cities, including Gujiao, which um, around, and I get, we can talk about this a little later, but around 87, 88, 89, it's a very particular moment where heroin becomes sort of, um, all, some people refer to it almost overnight as, as flooding the city. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you go into that in in the, in chapter one of your book, um, "Mayhem on the Mountains: The Rush of Heroin's Arrivals." The title of chapter one, and um, and here you open up. Um... So I arrived in Gudio, and in some ways, I was very much in the mindset of a public health person, um, and I think that it was a real struggle of while I was a graduate student, would I. Was I going to try to go into academia or would I go back to a foundation or, or some sort of more applied public health work? That was a very active question for me right up until I went into the field uh, after my third year of coursework. And I, I sort of severed my ties to um, the foundation that I was working for the basically the, the day before I started my field work. So I was extremely caught up in... Um, the, the job, uh, and but also a way of looking at the world that I think understood drug use as a particular set of questions. But And it was scaled up incredibly quickly throughout the country, and Goodyear was a pilot site for that. So I was going to write about that. Mm-hmm. And then when I, but when I got there, I realized that there were much more important questions that I hadn't really thought to ask at all. And it was partially a product of, I spent a fair amount of time in the previous years interacting with people with heroin use history in China, but it was always structured around um, project proposals. <laughs> and so in a way, actually, the, the phenomenological orientation of the book, this interest in lived experience and future horizons and the way in which people understand and live their relationship to the past and future. I think that part of the reason why that emerges as a theme in the book is because I was helping them 
to narrate and literally write out work plans, six months, one year, what are we going to do this time? How, how do you look for funding? What's your organization going to do? And so, um, so it was the big, that was for applied purposes, but it was the beginning of being involved in people's lives in a way that, um, was interested in, uh, narrative and when and how people came to understand themselves as particular types of historical actors capable of certain types of interventions. Um, and so the, the, the way that it became very concrete when I got to Gajo, and this is a story I tell in, 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 in the introduction, is the, the contrast between two ways of talking about recovery. And so one way is quitting drugs, uh, which is used all the time. And I, I argue that that term tends to refer to more of a biomedical understanding of the individual uh, individualized, isolated body that is free from drugs. Um, so the key there is how do how does one get one's body free from drugs, and then how does one maintain the sort of the goal is the absence of relapse. And you have this linear time where you're counting, you know, one year, three year, five years. How long has 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 this particular person been been clean? How long have they been quitting? And there's a certain discourse or discourses about jiedu. But then there's a second term, which is return to society, hui hui shu hui. And I, I argue that that term, which is used for drug use, but also for, for example, Falun Gong members or corrupt officials or other people who are in labor camps who are coming out, their work of returning to society, it, it's, it's labeled this other thing. And by including the term return, this hui gui, my interlocutors, when I would talk to them about what does it mean to return, first of all, they disagreed. <laughs> they had enormous plurality of answers of what that meant. But second of all, it focused not just on from individual to collective, but the question of when and how their recoveries were linked to broader history of the region, of the city, and what types of historical subjects they needed to be in order to recover. As well as when exactly this kwegwe would be realized became a real theme. As different people said, "Oh, it's impossible. Uh, it can be hap- It can happen, but only under these conditions." And then, in talking about that, they would be talking about also their particular understandings of what a quote-unquote normal person uh, looked like. But it was deeply suffused within, or connected to, thematically embedded within broader questions of historicity, which is sort of a key term that I track throughout the, throughout the book. And so these notions of how individual understandings of lived experience is phenomenological time is collected, is connected to historical shared, um, a we that is potentially uh, a broader, uh, historical subject. So in your introduction, you really, um, you really draw on, on how these stories of addiction and recovery that you encountered during your fieldwork, um, helped you to challenge your own preconceptions um, to recovery and addiction and also provided a new perspective or new perspectives to China's historical trajectory. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So I think that in coming to realize that this is a, pro- a project that's fundamentally about the lived experiences of uh, recovery, as opposed to addiction, which I think is important and hopefully clear from you know the stories we're going to talk about. I actually wasn't um, 
sort of wasn't really around people who were actively using heroin at all, um, or at least around the moments when they were actively using. And that emerged um, somewhat unintentionally. But uh, but the, the time that I spent with people, the majority of them um, were in, would have said that they were in some stage of, of recovery. Um, and a lot of our interactions were precisely around um, how they came to understand and realize these whatever ideas of what a life after drugs would look like. Um, and I think that the, the notion in, in the book, um, this, the idea of historicity is, is important, I think, for, for, for giving the listener a quick understanding of, of how people with heroin use history can potentially speak to broader uh, problems, sort of broader um, experiences in China and beyond. Um, and the term historicity uh, is taken up by a bunch of different literatures, and I quickly define it in three ways. Um, and throughout the account, um, throughout the recovering histories that appear in the later chapters of the book, um, each chapter tends to focus in on some aspect of historicity, but not necessarily the same one. And I sort of argue that um, there isn't, yeah, there isn't this over, overarching approach to experiences of time precisely because um, they vary. Uh, and so individual accounts, I, I pull on the literatures that seem most relevant to making sense of that particular individual or small groups um, um, struggles and, and, and hopes for the future. Um, but so historicity in, in three ways. So the first way of understanding historicity would be uh, in sort of this kind of cultural Marxist tradition or really any tradition where you understand the, the group that are writing about. And so in this case, people with heroin use history as potentially having a particularly uh, privileged position, a, a position, it's precisely their experiences of uh, being not being in the historical present in the sense of sometimes they, they argue that they feel ahead of the times and other times that they're behind it, that uh, sort of an adult life of vacillating between these different positions give them a particularly clear in certain moments view of the present and the ability to draw on the past uh, in ways that others uh, might not. And I think chapter four is the clearest example of this, which we'll talk about in a bit in sort of labor camps. And, um, and the, the second understanding of historicity that I think um, is often, it's, it's understood as historicity becomes a source of uh, a, a sort of, it contributes to the marginalization of this group. So instead of drug users, people with heroin use history seeing clearly, they're in, they're, um, the way in which they have incorporated the messages of a developmental discourse are precisely uh, blinding them from uh, making more clear uh, decisions about their own lives and sort of the pursuit. So the classic understanding of China is always sort of the Chinese state is strategically using this set of keywords to make sense of um, sort of the present becomes in the service of this particular and sometimes shifting understandings of a teleological future. So in, in this version, they're in, in some ways entrapped by, deceived, some sort of a false consciousness, it almost feels like. Um, and it, so, so the historicism, the way of understanding history is moving towards some sort of a goal that they are behind. That would be understood as a, as a, as a problem that they would need to get, sort of 
struggle against in some way. And then a third way that historicity is taken up is by a group of anthropologists who are saying, all of this is too broad and we need to understand that there are coexisting and complex um, sort of relationship between the, the experience of the individual in terms of temporality, the lived past and future, and then of collective understandings of history. And there isn't one discourse, even in the West, it, there, there are multiple coexisting discourses and that people uh, sort of what's needed is an ethnographic specificity to certain moments to make sense of um, how people are. It becomes a question rather than something that we know from a discourse. And so I think that my book draws in different moments from each of those three traditions of historicity to try to get at sort of the particular problem of um, the person who is appearing in that moment or sometimes a small group of people who are appearing at that moment in, in, in the ethnography. So I, 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 hope, I hope that makes sense. You recognize that that each um, each, each individual's history, history to heroin use is of their own um, different kind of... Um, circumstance. But you also found that there were shared experiences under specific opportunities that they confronted living in a tin mining capital during the 1980s and 90s, which is um, which you refer to as the rush years. Mm-hmm. And um, in reflecting to the sudden growth of economic capital and also tremendous challenges that your interlocutors faced in post-Mao China, in chapter one of your book, you quote Yan Jun saying, suddenly the beliefs we had held were gone. Our assumptions from our youth had been overthrown, and we were looking for something new to believe in, but couldn't find it. And you describe this um, sense of shared experience amongst Gojo residents um, quite broadly across um, the interlocutor, your interlocutors, who were looking for something new and soon found themselves part of what they, what you refer to as um, a kind of heroin generation. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit more about um, the tremendous change that this generation underwent and how heroin, heroin's arrival was shaped by some of these wider socioeconomic and political changes. Sure. Yeah, so, um, so I think one of the key arguments of the book is that when I arrived in 2009 to, to live there for a period of time, a lot of my assumptions about sort of the the nature of the heroin epidemic in Gajo, as well as um, sort of the, the economic situation of the people that I knew. It took me a while to figure out how foundational their coming of age experiences were for the recovering histories that make up the later chapters in this book. And so um, as I was thinking about how to tell their stories, it became really important for me to make a a really broad claim about um, the nature of their coming of age and to sort of write against a common way that a lot of people speak about heroin in in China and elsewhere of the key moment in people's lives is often traced to their early experiences with the drug. And it's that sort of what were, what were the moments of becoming, becoming uh, dependent on the substance and how did um, that, that initial encounter change their lives. And I fundamentally sort of rewrite the key events and argue that for most of the people that I knew, there was the moment of joining this nascent private sector that I call, or they call the society, um, capital S to distinguish it from other uses of society, um, which is a term that's used in China at a lot of different periods. But in this particular moment in the 80s refers to a broader group of thousands of young 
people in and around Goodyear who uh, seize the opportunities of the reform and opening of the mountain and basically are rushing on to the mountain to try to engage in private sector mining that had been effectively banned for, for decades. And so I argue that um, it's that group's broader experience of leaving their parents' ways of living that fundamentally um, shapes the way that they understand their lives, including, you know, decades later, how they think about um, the trajectory of their addiction, but also what a life after heroin would, would look like. And so it's those key early events that in some, everybody's stories is different and some people got wealthy and a lot of people didn't. And so I'm not arguing that they had the same experiences, but there's a fundamental, and here I draw on uh, Carl Mannheim and uh, actually David Scott has an interesting extension of some of his ideas about the way in which um, a generational cohort comes to understand themselves as uh, historical subjects, sharing an orientation towards the past and future, um, common horizons within which uh, then people can have very different experiences. But, but there was something about this group that, um, and those years that they argue, separate from heroin addiction, um, was this question of choosing whether or not you stayed in school, you followed your parents' uh, careers in some way, or you broke free. And the group who ended up using heroin were, the vast majority of them, were from this group that, that broke free. And often it was um, this decision to leave their parents. We, we haven't talked about it yet, but this iron rice bowl tradition, um, mm-hmm, this, mm-hmm. sort of the legacies of state-owned enterprises in this particular city were incredibly strong. So Yunnan Tin employed over 100,000 people and um, supported yeah, well over 100,000 people and their families and literally built the infrastructure of the city, which was available to people who... Uh, were part of that way, part of that work unit. And so the decision of many of these young people to, to refuse to take over their parents' jobs and to go out on their own, um, that in many ways was a key event that, um, that requires reckoning with in addition to the more familiar, in some ways, heroin stories. And, and just, to, just to clarify, so, so following that, that path on your, on, on, on your own would be entering the private sector and, and quite often with this kind of the, the mining industry. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. And, and, and it's not, it, there are also, it's sort of, there's a bunch of, of stuff happening on the mountain and between almost exactly the same period, this sort of mid to late eighties. Um, but, but really the, into the 1990s, there's this time when, um, sort of local SOEs and the government structure more generally are allowing basically whoever's strong and can take control of surface mining are if they suddenly um, the tin ore becomes a commodity again and anybody who has it can sell it for a market price. And so that unleashes this really dramatic, you know, when we talk about reform and opening and we talk about the 1980s as an experimental time. Goodyo, because of this iron race bowl tradition, and then the way in which the the mountains were liberalized, the sort of the, this, this this decision to to, to um, sort of the policies that supported it, people had sort of the question of if and how a young person turned towards the private sector was an incredibly charged for for um, for a lot of these families, and th- that that chapter, chapter one documents um, 
the relationships between um, these three men and their and for two of them explicitly talking about their relationship actually all of them um, talking about their relationships to their parents and how mm-hmm. in certain cases the decision around uh, choice of occupation was far more damaging to their relationship at the time than uh, when their parents found out about their heroin use. So it sort of helps, I think that helps to focus us on the question of well, what were shared aspects of this generational cohort who went into the society and how are those common ways of understanding not just their own lives, but the trajectory of the country? How does mm-hmm. how do those experiences of their youth uh, continue to inflect the ways that they think about the world now? So um, in chapter two, titled Recovering as Adaptation, Catching Up to the Private Sector, you delve into the recovery from heroin, not only as a body that is free from opioids, but also the recovery of having to face the challenges of society. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about the sense of recovery that forced individuals to break habits that they accumulated in the rush years, as you just described, um, and, and thereby had to face a sense of self, which, as you described, through the individuals that you got to know who were trying to move um, towards a life without heroin, um, they were continuously, at the same time, facing what you describe as um, vestiges of the past. Mm-hmm. Sure, yes. So, so this chapter, so this is the first of five chapters that each one tells, in a sense, uh, the way in which one individual or a small group of people come to narrate and live the challenges of return to society and how basically how they um how they respond to that question not in an interview but through sort of over an extended period of time as 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 i come to know them um and this particular figure, Sam, is really, there's, there's a few other ones who are kind of on the margins of this chapter, but it's really about an individual person. And, and he um, was sort of re- really kind of, I think it, it might be helpful to just, to just briefly describe our relationship. I mean, he was uh, an incredibly uh, sort of charismatic, powerful, like I really kind of thought of him as an older brother. Uh, he came and he helped me out in key ways when I first arrived. And there's something about his presence often that was so reassuring to me as somebody who was living in this new city and kind of struggling with a lot of things. Um, so, but, but there was an interesting contrast between the way in which he appeared when he was with other people with heroin use history, when it was without a question, he was a leader and he actually had, had been a very successful entrepreneur and had, um, on the mountains had made a lot of money for a lot of years. And as late as 1999 was making quite a bit of money running a casino. So he had this sort of long history of, um, sort of illicit as well as licit economic activity. Um, but he, um, when he was around other uh, other people from other generations, older or younger, uh, and I start with this sort of our encounter in a bar where he feels so alienated and it's almost si- sort of silent for this extended period of time around this younger group of entrepreneurs who we meet at a bar and go sing karaoke with. And uh, it really struck me that he was somebody who in certain environments, his bodily disposition, his, his way of navigating, the way he talked and thought, uh, 
worked in some way and allowed him to take up certain roles. And then in other moments, specifically sort of around these actors who were often understood as entrepreneurs of the moment, including these younger ones, but also sort of successful former colleagues, he took on this other demeanor. Um, And so I sort of explore in this chapter, it's really thinking about recovery as embodied and thinking sort of along the lines with the the Kleinman's uh, work on uh, the question of uh, how bodies remember, and then also working with people like Bourdieu and hysteresis, this bodily lagging, but thinking about when people say, which is something that I think isn't just drug users, I feel stuck in the past, which was such a common, um, a common sort of idiom for speaking about the different difficulties of, of recovery. Sam allows me, I, th- I think, I hope, to explore exactly how and why he came to feel this way and explores the particular situations that he navigates in trying to become an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur of the current moment. And so when, when I asked him this question of, you know, return to society, he, he explicitly answers this question, return is the wrong word to use. I need to catch up. I need to adapt to the current historical moment. And I was the wrong type of entrepreneur. Like in learning what I learned in the late 1980s and 90s, I got into a lot of trouble and I need to um, figure out the way to be the type of the economic actor that um, the current moment demands. And that is the fundamental way that he uh, comes to see the work of recovery. That's really that's really fascinating. Um, and at the same time, when we move on to chapter three, you really um, write more about just the shared sense of hopelessness of, of you know, that's one thing to say, um, I need to recover and, and catch up <laughs> with society. And then in chapter three, we're struck with, with individuals who are just feeling utterly hopeless and, and as you describe, depressed and really struggling to form a new life um, in, in Gujo. And in this chapter, so chapter three, titled Absence of a Future Narrative, Obsolence and Community, you really delve into a narrative style or looking at narration and temporality and the temporality of narration in efforts to better understand when and how particular forms of recovery become possible and also how narration allows for a sense of shared history in a given collective. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could tell us a bit more about how people employ narrative structuring and the temporal configuration that the structuring embodies. Sure. So, so, so this, this chapter emerges from encounters with a small number of people, but uh, sort of individuals that left a really strong impression on me as each time that I was with them, I would start to feel this incredible weight and this sort of hopelessness. And if, the, if in this chapter, the question of uh, how does one return to society, the answer would be, it's too late. There is no return. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, it was a way of grouping together uh, interactions with a, a small number of people who somehow their stories were different and they, they were all clearly struggling. And lots of other people were struggling too. But this seemed to be struggling with sort of the abandonment of the possibility of the future. And I do take it up phenomenologically, like literally when I tried to talk to them, these individuals about what they were going to do in the afternoon, the next day, you know, <laughs> months in ahead, sort of the, the conversation would, would stop. 
Um, and so it, it's, it's exploring, in a sense, trying to substitute, because one way of understanding this group would be through um, turning to mental health. And I mean, I, I, I discussed this, like, I, I think that, that they could certainly be diagnosed with sort of severe clinical depression. I mean, the, the, um, but I, I, I guess my interest in the chapter is really to think about, as you were mentioning, the, the importance of narrative uh, and also of collective, because I think that part of the key to understanding them as a cohort is to see how they, their individual lives were attached to this broader, their understanding of the heroin generation as, as a group. And so, um, so, so yes, yeah, so, so I, so I take on, on the one hand, I start talking about individuals and narrative and plotment. So Cheryl Manningly and this idea, narrative and plotment in a lot of literature is about the opening up of possibility. So, so narratives in clinical settings become, how do we keep the future open? And for me, the question of the chapter is how is this group closing the future in a very particular existential way that's also a work of of narrative um and so so it's both lived and uh described in these very incredibly bleak terms and one of the common themes of this group is this assertion that it's not just that their lives are ending prematurely they're not sure when they'll die and there isn't anything more really to write about their lives the key moments have already happened but it's also that that is true of this group, the heroin generation, this broader collective of uh, a few thousand, at one point it was several thousand, and during my field work, maybe two or three thousand people who have been using heroin for this, for, for, for you know, off and on for, for, for two decades or more. So the, this group, because of HIV, because of overdoses, um, and also just because of the, the severity of their relationship with the, the substance, there are... It, there is a truth to this sense of, as a cohort, they are slowly disappearing from history. Um, and I explore uh, sort of towards the end of the chapter how is, this isn't just the work of an individual narrative, but it's actually their understanding of being left behind the historical trajectory of the country and their, their broader narratives of what's happening around them creates the conditions under which their own stories are necessarily in the past tense. Um, and so I, I sort of draw on some uh, phenomenology of history stuff and thinking about this collective we that under certain conditions um, gets to be uh, embodied in these really um, sort of, yeah, very, very difficult ways. And sort of the, the, the example that the chapter ends on, which is one of the more powerful moments in Goodyear, was this relationship I had with a table tennis player, a person with heroin use history who's, who had been quite uh, accomplished table tennis player and we went to play and we played the first time it didn't go particularly well we went the second time and he i gave him a a, a paddle that was a good like a tacky paddle so that he had a paddle that he was beginning to find these old movements and he was sort of laughing and we were talking very briefly during and after that event about making new plans and maybe playing again and then the next time i saw him and every time afterwards we never played again and he was always trying to give me back the paddle to say that like that way of um of of <laughs> of living sort of i guess it's a, a metaphor more broadly for for sort of how you understand your your relationship to a particular set of projects that could bring about a certain future. He, he was trying to return it to me. Yeah. And also, if I remember correctly, um, he, it, it was also kind of, um, 
a kind of return to if it was his school years when he was a well-known table tennis player. Is that correct? So it was also as he was improving while you were playing with him, his body was kind of returning to returning to um, the kind of habitus that he had in yeah. those school years before heroin. And then at the same time, after this kind of event, after he realized that actually he's capable of something and then you departed. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing when he was faced with, with back to his kind of bleak reality, it's a kind of rejection yeah. of that past or that's how I, I understood well, definitely, yeah, I think that's right. And actually, we were when we were playing, there was a mutual friend who knew him, who was in school, actually the same class as him, who was with us watching us play. And he was saying to me, he was the best student in our class. He was so smart. He, and sort of, um, and he had his own motives for doing that. But but this this particular individual, it was, yeah, it, it was, I think, linked to this broader um, sort of way of, uh, it, it is partially embodied, although I, I also think, I mean, in this chapter, I'm really emphasizing, emphasizing the importance of, of narrative and the way in which that reality, I mean, of course, like I, would, I wouldn't argue, there, you know, the situation faced by the majority of people in, in this book is quite bleak, but um, certain people are able to find a way to sustain themselves in understanding themselves as part of this process of becoming, of recovery, however it's defined. And this was the only group in the, the book where that didn't seem to be happening. And there was this incredibly um, uh, just uh, visceral, um, yeah, it, it, was, it was really, really challenging to be around them um, as they were sort of <laughs> like, like the pronouncements that they were making weren't necessarily wrong, but the way that they narrated them um, made impossible the own, you know, the sort of Sartrean, um, like, like they, the, yeah, they, they were shutting down the possibility that their future could be different from their past in a fundamental way. Mm-hmm. Right. And then in chapter four, you turn to look at a different way of envisioning um, a future through the kind of um, treatment centers, so heroin, heroin treatment centers, and you um, look at or you describe how these treatment centers have changed dramatically in Gojo over the course of China's market reform era. And you also write about how men and women with heroin use history, spend time, or, or as they say, idle in these government-created drop-in centers. One of which you, which you describe in more detail, which you call Green Orchard. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this chapter, you explore how these visitors connect embodied experiences of their unemployment by idling um, to perceived inadequacies of Chinese state policies and practices. Yes. So, so, th- so this chapter. Um... I, so I, I think that the, so the question of these these labor centers um, is quite complicated. Uh, maybe I'll take a slight step back to say, um, first of all, that China has a very particular way of handling um, drug use, and it relies on urine tests, um, which police can administer at any time. And there's a database that tracks people with uh, who are registered drug users and. Police at any time can say, you know, hey, you come urinate for me in this cup. And if there are traces of heroin, if you've used heroin within the last week or two, um, and the test picks it up without a trial, uh, you're you're taken for one to three years in these compulsory laboring centers. Um, so it's incredibly uh, 
that has an enormous effect on um, sort of the ontological status of being somebody with recent use. Like you're, you're not safe to be a person, even if you don't have drugs on you, it's in your system. Um, mm. And it also creates this quite striking, it's not to say that there's not uh, criminal justice, you know, there's not criminal approaches in the USA or many places around the world. But, but I think China is unusual in how often people are moving in and out of these centers. And there's one person in particular, uh, Meng, who has literally uh, been in and out of the centers 10 times at the time I meet him. So he's 38 and he's been in the centers for uh, the the great majority of his adult life laboring. And that's a little bit unusual. That's that's an extreme case, but it gives a sense of the way that the condition of addiction isn't necessarily defined by the relationship to heroin. It's defined by the movement in and out of these centers. And so um, the book, which we haven't really discussed much, but like like, like um, this aspect of it, but labor is in the title. And so in a sense, yeah. every ver- every question of what does it mean to return to society, every answer has labor in it in some way. Like to, to be unemployed is not to be returned. That Everybody would agree on that. So the question of labor is also a historical question. And I think this chapter sort of is thinking about these this group of people with heroin use history who are hanging out at this drop-in center where they can sort of, it's been coordinated with the local police that drug users can't be arrested on the grounds or coming and going from it. So it's, it's a safe space for people both who are recovering, but also active heroin users to spend time. Um, and so I would just hang out with them in these plastic lawn chairs outside on this patio and just had a, it was a way of, um, understanding the centers because, um, the, I came to realize over going there for months that there was this constant movement of people in and out of the centers. And what the chapter does is, um, it actually emerged from being involved in this foundation that sort of took a human rights approach to, to, um, to these compulsory labor centers, which, sorry, and I should say, I'll pause there too. So, so the labor centers are literally the same institutions that were created under Mao that were called uh, Lao Jiao Suo, like uh, labor camps. And they got renamed over the years and there was two systems that, that coexist and sort of complicated, uh, but but the renamed, they're now called isolated compulsory detox centers, they're literally, uh, in many parts of the country, they're the same institutions that Mao, op- that, that the Maoist government opened in and formalized in 1957. And they ch- the treatment period is one to three years is the same that, that Mao determined. And similarly, it's not considered a violation of a law. It's this other type of uh, sort of transgression. And so the question of compulsory labor, I argue, it's still alive in the sort of all of the Maoist ideas of the labor as, as remolding uh, guides out, like are still alive in these centers. And so that allows us then to see, because in, sorry, in the human rights work that I was doing, um, the, the goal was to document how horrible the centers were. And, and I certainly still <laughs> talking to many people, they are horrible places. That, that is not a claim that I would ever want to dispute. And of course, they should be, clo- they should be closed and there should be medical treatment for people with uh, heroin use history instead of compulsory uh, labor. It's, it's a horrible way to treat drug use. And, but like, so, like while that, that's all true and these sort of human rights watch style Chinese language reports that came out well, sort of while I was doing field work were documenting all these horrible things in the centers. But also... 
when these people with heroin use history were sitting on the patio unemployed, idling um, in green orchards, they were pissed at the government for not providing labor, including potentially labor that might be understood as having compulsory elements to allow them to continue the routines that they've been sort of doing for one to three years before they were let out. So it's in part a moral claim that is drawing on this kind of complicated, and I sort of split it between the 1950s understanding of labor that they evoke and then a 1980s sort of iron rice bowl version. But both of those versions, the government is fundamentally responsible for their labor power. And I think that there's really, uh, I don't take it up in terms of nostalgia, but, but there's, um, there's a strong critique of the present and sort of the sort of the neoliberal reforms that leave them um, idling for long periods that the government owes them uh, a job and maybe even a job that might look uh, a little bit different from sort of similar requests that would be made in other parts of the world. Yeah, so the idling, the, the kind of critique of the idling came from the from from the people in these centers themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and right. and it's precisely that because especially when you had people who were just coming out of the centers and they had been laboring. Sometimes you know, I mean, it was, sometimes it was really horrible, but but they had been laboring a lot in the centers for long periods of time, supposedly receiving job training, and they were saying that part of the difficulty of coming out and idling was that they were used to, they had learned the way that they were supposed to, how to conform to the the necessities of whatever factory production that they were doing, and so. Partially, it was that they wanted money and status of having a job, but partially it was also an argument that they precisely had internalized what the state wanted them to. And then instead of providing them with jobs, they had this drop-in center that was state-sanctioned where they were supposed to just hang out and do do nothing. And so um, specifically the 1950s, there's all these examples of including some of their relatives and people that they know of their grandparents' generation, people who used opium who were rehabilitated through job assignments. And so, and even in the 80s, people coming out of labor camp, uh, like older siblings sometimes who had been arrested for, not necessarily for heroin, for other um, for, for other crimes or for other infractions. They were coming out of these centers and they were given jobs on the mountains, which turned out to be actually really helpful for launching their careers. So they, they have this historical understanding of if you're gonna have us, if you're gonna have these centers exist, you need to have made the commitment to uh, keeping sort of to, to, to the broader project of helping us to to close the gap between us and normal people, which was precisely the promise of the early Maoist um, sort of emphasis on labor is fundamentally transformative. So, so the radically, uh, in some ways, liberatory understandings of the 1950s uh, treatment had been emptied of this collective commitment, and that's, or at least their imagination of that commitment. Although they also had examples from the eighties, a variety of examples of showing how far the state would go to support these these, these state workers. What I really enjoyed about your book is, is the the honesty in your voice, and um, you mentioned earlier in the book that you struggled with this kind of uncomfortable feeling of of your ethnography becoming a type of salvage anthropology, mm-hmm. which I personally did not feel it falls into this slot. Um, another um, merit of your of your writing style, and and um, and the voice that that comes out through your writing is that um, you don't you don't. 
the, when you write about your interlocutors, you don't write about them in a manner that feeds any unwanted pity, because this is really not this is really not what the people you got to know are seeking for. Um, and instead, what you do is just write an ethnography that is honest and intimate, and and um, detailing the everyday lives of people who are recovering from heroin addiction in Gujil. Um, the everyday life of a recovery named Sue comes up in chapter five of your book, which is also by far, um, I felt the most per- personally felt the most moving chapter. And in this, in this, in, in this chapter five, you explore how Sue returns to society by focusing on her efforts to cultivate and repair relationships with others to create a life after addiction. Following Sue's life over many years, you describe how people with drug histories continue to carry the weight of the past and seek to find normalcy. And in this chapter, um, you begin with the story of Sue and Pan, who met in a compulsory labor center for heroin addicts and fell in love immediately, even though um, in the labor camp itself, they couldn't show any signs of affection. So secret glances and love letters were passed between one another until they were finally released. Um, and you describe how Pan even extended his stay. If I remember correctly, it was Pan who extended his stay so that they could walk out of the labor camp together hand in hand. Um, you also, in the chapter, describe their wedding celebration, which um, Sue explicitly highlights was an attempt for the couple to shift their image of drug users to becoming normal persons. Um, and this normalcy becomes a thread throughout the chapter, as you describe Sue, after great effort and discrimination, finally lays a job selling cleaning products whilst constantly undergoing caring labor and even adopting a two-month-year-old girl. The chapter really takes an unexpected turn with the death of her husband, Pan. And eventually, Sue finds another partner, one that she can rely on financially, but one that was also full of secrets about her past addictions. The emotional attachment or reliance, as you describe, that she experienced with Pan is not present with this new partner, who instead fits the norms of society. And this allows Sue to reach, um, to come closer to reaching a normal person's life. Um, could you tell us a bit more about this sense of normalcy and what it meant to people you got to know in Gujo? Uh, how did they envision it, and did anyone confidently claim that they were able to achieve it? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I guess, so I, I think that there, in a sense, there are two ways. I, I wouldn't want to generalize um, a normal person's life across sto- across individuals, because I think that that's part of this question of like, what does it mean to return to society? Different people have very different ideas. Um, and I think Sue was especially explicit in wanting to erase this line between being a person with drug use history or drug user. And that's a slippage that keeps happening. She was always at risk of having other people interpolate her as a drug user. And it was incredibly important to her that she achieve uh, a financial independence, uh, certain success as an entrepreneur, because that was her early life. She was an incredibly successful um, sort of business owner. Um, but also that uh, this this sort of, um, I think it is existential, except that for her, it's a very explicitly linked to relationships to others. And so the labor of recovery for her quite explicitly was linked to this uh, work of uh, kinship or, or you mentioned the sort of caring labor, but specifically working with family members and friends, but also this extensive community to um, to repair and to sh- prove to others that that she and and Pan w- when they were getting married that the two of them uh, had returned, and so um, 
So, so I think that that yeah, the broader question of what that means for other uh, people with heroin use history, I think I think takes on other dynamics. But it was a common struggle, a common complaint that um, I think is common in a lot of places, but especially a small city like Goodyear, where people you're always everybody's walking and it's quite compact and dense, and so everybody's being seen by other people, and so it's an incredible practical problem because she would get jobs, she'd talk herself into jobs, and then. Uh, somebody who knew her would see her tell the employer and then suddenly she'd be let go of, you know, during the first week of employment. So um, that, of course, has practical implications. But more generally, I think there's this feeling of a desire of what it means to exist as a normal person for her that had all these kind of complicated fantasies worked in it. And part of the reason why I got to know her so well and her, her and Pan specifically was um my first week in Gajo, one of the first dinners I went to with this group of, of, of uh, people, people with heroin use history, they, uh, during the dinner, asked me if I would be in their wedding party. Um, and I barely knew them at that point. But so it's sort of like, and their wedding was two months later. So I immediately became part of this really, I mean, it is a form of labor, I think, that, that Pan, but especially Sue, was undertaking to try to make the wedding itself be the marker, not just of their status as a married couple, but also of sort of like a, a right of affliction, like so to do the work, collective work of creating a break between their past as addicts and their future as normal people. Um, so, so I was very personally, uh, from the really our very first moments, like I, I was involved in, in, in that work, uh, in being a witness, but also in, in, um, attending the wedding, but, but all of the complications that arose from, from that particular moment in their lives. Yeah. And it sounds like you, you were involved in a lot more, um, aspects of their lives. You, you helped a lot with her other, if I remember correctly, was it her sister or brother who was studying with English mm-hmm. and, um, and you were, it seems like you were very present in, in a lot of different events. That were taking place in their lives in addition to to the other individuals you write about well and i would say too that i mean they really were present in my life in all of these sort of incredibly generous ways like that when i was sick i got pretty sick at the end of the first month and they were there with you know meal and kind of coming to the apartment to hang out and check on me and then when i left uh at the end of the first year that i was there they kept my bike and my uh, tennis shoes and the stuff that they're, they're sort of they, they you know they, I mean it was incredibly generous of them but I think also symbolic they were holding the space for me to be able to come back and so yeah so much of me feeling uh, at home there in Kajot was to, was due to to the two of them um, and and their generosity yeah and this really moves nicely to to chapter um, six of your book um, another if I understood correctly, anchor in your research mm-hmm. um, is Yenjun. And this chapter titled, um, the, this chapter titled from the, from the Community, Civil Society Ambitions and the Limits of Phenomenology takes a bit of a different turn from the previous ones. Um, it revolves around Yenjun, someone who you described committed his life to defending the rights of the people, of people with drug use history. You describe his dreams and aspirations and all the meaningful work he has completed to help build a civil society that is more accepting of people who are recovering from drugs. But you also describe a different, less rosy side of Yanjun, 
He's also corrupt, greedy, and deceitful, or so you hear from other people who've worked with him or know of him. But rather than leaving it there, you pause and you confess to the reader that you never quite made sense of Yan Jun and disclose that you are not satisfied with objectifying him as either a hero or a trickster, that neither of these narratives are honest depictions of him. And I think anyone who's taken on the task of completing ethnographic fieldwork and then writing about the people who grew closest to us can relate to the struggle, or at least I personally can. Mm. Um, But what I've what I felt you were trying to do with this chapter is, or by, 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 by having these moments of pause and reflection and the honesty through your writing style, um, you go beyond, go beyond these characters that you got to know so intimately to, to discuss um, and reflect on the lack of, or the kind of the limitations of phenomenological approach to recovering histories. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe you could tell our listeners a bit more about these limitations. Um, that you confronted as you pulled together the final revisions of this book. Sure. I mean, so actually, if it's okay, I'll, do, I'll cause I, I do want to, cause I think it'll help to explain um, that particular move, which I think is a move in reaction to this chapter, but also in relation to the book project as a whole. But if I, I'll, let me say a couple more words about how that, how it came to be set up, because I think that that, it's key for, for getting the context. So, so he, of course. he was the person who I met um, almost two years before I moved to Gudio. He was the first person from Gudio that I um, that I met professionally and in Beijing. Um, and he was so compelling. Um, but by compelling, you know, compelling to me at a certain moment in my career. And there's a way I, you're talking about this, like as I was trying to write this chapter and be honest about our relationship, you know, I think he at times can be understood as being sort of parasitic, but I was just as parasitic as he was, <laughs> if we're being honest. Like, and specifically, I needed from the foundation that I was working for to find people from the community, quote unquote, people with heroin use history willing to do this very particular type of work. And he seemed to embody everything that the foundation and thus I was trying to find, it was like, aha, this is the person. This is the, and so from, you know, an hour into our first conversation, he took on this incredible, um, complicated, uh, sort of, uh, influence in my life that is difficult to explain. And that I think in part was he allowed me to look good to my employers. Like that was one aspect of it, but there was something, and this was, this chapter was written, it was the last one of the book. Uh, and I, I, as you alluded to, I was writing it, I couldn't finish it. And I was writing it last summer, and I was coming to it over and over again. And it was not writing itself. And I couldn't figure out the voice that I wanted to have or what I wanted to say about him. Um, and in, yeah, I mean, to very briefly to, to outline the, the argument of because it, it is in some ways an intervention in the discussion of civil society, which I think um, there's a rich literature in China, and it's something that oh, a lot of different disciplines care deeply about this question of, I mean, and sometimes it's it's a quite reductive question. Does China have civil society? How do we count it or something? But I think that the, the broader question of what does civil society as a symbol, how is it contested, and how does it take root within different actors' life projects and life worlds, you know, the the futures that they imagine for themselves and how they move through the world. And he, more than anybody that I ever met in China, 
defined himself as speaking. He had this was literally his email tag was from the community for the community, you know, uh, like that in Chinese and English. He had that as his tag. So he was somebody who it was incredibly important for him, but also arguably important for, you know, the funding environment that he was moving in to represent himself in that way. And that speaking for his community became incredibly complicated in all sorts of different ways. And the chapter kind of tracks that. But he had two, when he said, I am, I, because I think he did something that nobody else did that was incredibly bold and I found so powerful, which was everybody else was trying in some ways to catch up, to return to, you know, the, the idea was they were somehow behind his narrative, which, and he was on the news and interviewed and, you know, he, he had a real ability to, to network and to get his story out there. Um, but he, um, he argued that his experiences didn't make him like, didn't give him, enable him to catch up. They made him a vanguard of the future of the country. And he was ahead of Zheng Changren or, you know, normal people or whatever, like, like China. So he diagnoses China in a very particular way as stuck in, in all these complicated ways. And he sort of like in a, in, in a way going back to the 1980s, if there was a group of people who rushed ahead, then he's rushing ahead in the 2000, you know, in 2009, 10, 11, 12, whatever, climbing this new mountain of civil society, which is supported by, you know, domestic, but also internet, particularly international donors. So, um, so, so he, he situates that both in relationship to one version of it is he's this network architect who supports other people. So he supports people with drug use history to realize themselves in the way that he has to have this critical consciousness. But then he also, uh, depicts himself, especially later in his career, as this fearless rights defender who is a lone, brave person who, specifically through encounters with the police, is able to prove that he has the ability to stand up to the system, the state, when when it's unjust, and to show that, that sort of embody a certain type of courage that other people uh, and sort of <laughs> the Chinese populace more generally lacks. So he has those narratives and I allow them to play out. And then as you were saying, like all these other voices come in and I allow other people to explain how not just their reactions to him and his story, but also implicitly and sometimes explicitly this question of civil society in China, whose idea is it? What is the genealogy who can realize it? And so they're talking about the future of the, they're talking about history, about collective history and who drives it. So, um, then, so I sort of, you see him emerging in, from all these different angles. And then the moment comes in the writing where I was totally stuck and I was saying, well, where do I put myself in this? Um, and this is when I make this move that you're referring to where the whole project of the book kind of becomes, um, I kind of reveal it as a certain form of artifice that um, sort of there's this neat way that each chapter is the person neatly embodies whatever the theme of the chapter is and you know as i go back and think about it it wasn't really you know it's part of what we learn i guess as anthropologists is a particular way of constructing this is very clear um people become ways of having conversations they they become ideas in a certain sense and he wouldn't allow me to do that with him just our our, our interactions like i i couldn't i couldn't um there wasn't a way that I could make him stand for something. And so in the end, I had a dream in, I think it was July, like I had a deadline coming up and I was getting really anxious and I was spending all this time on this draft of this chapter. And I had a dream 
that he was there with me and we were in a train and I was telling other people about his story and they were watching and listening to me. And I kept on looking at him. So I was telling the stories of the book and I kept on looking at him to have a reaction to what I was saying. And he just had this completely blank face and he didn't say anything. Um, and so I sort of work with the dream and explore um, what it might say about the subject, about any attempt to, <laughs> to reduce people in certain ways. And then sort of, and somebody else who has done a, has sort of reached a similar or talks about a similar shift in their work is, uh, is Byron Good, who started in cultural phenomenology and then more recently has gotten really interested in psychoanalysis. So in some ways, I think that it was something similar happening for me where I had begun to work on the second project and um, was realizing and becoming the limitations of the way that I constructed this book were becoming clear to me. And in the end of the chapter, I just basically talk about how much um, I miss him. And I don't try to, to explain it yeah. in a way, like the, the nature of this connection that is um, messy in all sorts of ways, but also like deeply, I just, he's one of these people who, um, very small number of people who have really, really somehow deeply uh, impacted my life. And I can't exactly explain why or how, or how that relates to the future of China or why his words to me in those ways grip me in a certain way, but, but it's just, um, yeah. So, so, so that's kind of how it ends after calling into questions, the other chapters, but specifically he um, shows more generally this problem that I've been quietly <laughs> um, ignoring throughout the book, which is that people are incredibly complicated and in that they, they don't fit right. these, uh, these, these structures of experience or of narrative. You know, they exceed them all the time, which is part of what his activism is precisely arguing. You don't know who I am. Mm. Yeah, and, and uh, if I remember correctly, you make this reference. To, I mean, you were drawn to, I guess, doing a research project, committing, um, committing years to 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 ethnography, to field work, and and still continuing down academic trail um, with this question of or or pursuit of complicating, um, no, you know linear versions or singular versions of Chinese history. Mm -hmm. And he really kind of draws that out. But just so that the listeners um, are a bit more familiar with the engine, because just now when you were describing him, you'd made it sound a bit as if he's, um, you know, a big show. Mm -hmm. But he also, um, if I remember correctly in the book, in, the, in this final, in this chapter, he's a, he's not just words, he's also a lot of action. Mm. And he's, um, you know, there's these record, he, he takes recorded interactions with people with police on the phone, and he kind of very much draws on his own notions of, of Chinese law and legal system to, to um, um, if, if, for example, an officer is using excessive use of force, or um, kind of, um, doesn't use a warrant and so forth. So he's also, if I if I've understood correctly, done a lot for um, China's drug testing policies yeah. and um, and so forth. So absolutely, yeah. Well, and and his, yeah. I mean, I think that you know, the, there's no question that he um, that he has had enormous influence on many people's lives. And what's interesting, I don't talk about it that much in the chapter, but I allude to it a little bit, but like, it wasn't just me, like lots of people. And, and I have friends who say, well, this is, this, you know, it's a personality type and this is, I don't know, he turned to a, a certain understanding of charisma or something, but, but there's his, the very particular, he had a, 
he had a way of interacting with people and especially people involved in this field in various ways. Some people with heroin use history and some people without who like they would just have this conviction like I know he's made lots of mistakes. It doesn't matter. Like he has something that we need that the country needs maybe. Um, so, so there's, there's, I think, um, yeah, the, 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 he clearly has. And I try to show that, like, for example, just even in these small interactions with um, at a checkout counter where he's talking to yeah. the woman, who, the cashier, and he has this calm way of, you know, giving her this space to learn her job that he just he, he, it, it's who he is. He's not, I don't think that he was performing that for anybody. And and that way that he attends to other people and nurtures them and how he draws on the power of his own life very selectively, but it's, it, it really, I think, uh, touches people in, in, um, in very profound ways that, that is interesting to think about in this question of what is return, because I think part of what is so compelling about him is that he models uh, something that there's no, there wasn't anybody else who answered the question in that particular way. Um, and I think that uh, that that I knew, you know, in, in this in this field work, and I think that uh, the way that he developed relationships around that um, was really 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 special. Mm, yeah, that that really comes out through your writing. Um, moving on to the epilogue, you write about some of the observations from your most recent trip to Goodyear. Mm. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about that trip and the kinds of changes that you observed? Sure. Yeah. So, so it's 10 years to the date after my first or to the month after my first time uh, <laughs> go, going to Gujo. And uh, the person who uh, is a figure in the introduction in chapter one, who, who is, yeah, is, is a close friend, he, he takes me, he still is working at this NGO that he helped to found. And he takes me up into the mountains and we go to his site that he hasn't been back to in 15 years or so where he made a fortune and also started using heroin. And so it's talking about the changes between the city and the mountain. So that, again, like this question of back to the mountain, like it's sort of um, is trying to get at like, how does the history come to be lived in spaces that people are, are navigating as I'm walking, you know, with him. And he's talking about like the mines are now shut. There's nobody's, we have to go over a fence to get to this part of, uh, the area of the mountains where it's basically um, no mining is happening at all. So it's sort of a resource depleted area now. And it's talking about how he and other people in Gujo are living in this current moment, like what they understand the future to look like individually and collectively as part of Gujo, but also part of China. And so it's sort of rather than try to go back to individual stories and tell what happened with individual people, it's tr sort of trying to get back at this question of what is the collective we uh, and how is it existing um, as, yeah, as we go on to and off of the mountain this last time. Mm. Yeah, it's really, um, really beautiful um, end to, to this, to, to your ethnography, which also begins with, with the same characters in the same mountain. Mm. So it's a nice way of um, drawing drawing back to to the story that that the book begins with with the with the trail and the mountain and the and the rats and all of that, which <laughs> you can describe, or we can let the readers themselves get sure. the book and read it because um, um, it's yeah, it's just it's it's something that you might have to read for yourself. So. <laughs> um, 
Well, Nick, I've, I've taken up a lot of your time, so I wanted to conclude our conversation to talk a bit about what you're working on and thinking about these days. What are your current projects and what have you been doing since Recovering Histories was published? Sure. So um, I guess, <laughs> well, it's sort of, it, this book took a while uh, to, to write. And so in a sense, the, the second project started uh, quite a long time ago, um, maybe seven years ago, uh, or I don't know how exactly sort of, I, I began to have the idea that I wanted to um, look at mental health in China and specifically uh, this, I mean, it's a strange way in, but but through, through psychoanalysis and this psychodynamic tradition, sort of the, the legacies of Freud um, and specifically the transmission of these traditions to China. And it happened actually out of Good yo, that the new project took shape. And a, a friend of mine who uh, actually was a, a mining boss, sort of a very successful, not, not mining boss, like a, uh, the head of a large company, he, um, there's, a, there's a tragedy and he ca- called me almost exactly after my field work had, um, had ended to say, I need to go into therapy and I need somebody who's Chinese speaking, but I don't want somebody in mainland China. And I want psychoanalysis because he'd read that that was the best treatment. Um, and so, and so I sort of started emailing in the U.S. and started looking around. And there was this article uh, that Evan Osnes wrote about um, this, this group, the Chinese American Psychoanalytic Association, and uh, spoke to people from there and found him somebody. And then um, he sort of, yeah. The, the, that, that was one link that began to take shape from Good Yo. And then my wife uh, and her mother-in-law actually is a psychoanalyst and a psychiatrist. And my wife also, mm. it turns out, is, is going that direction as a career. So suddenly I was sort of surrounded by this tradition that seemed to be pulling at me from the U.S. and from China. Um, and a few, few years into it, because I started training, um, taking courses in psychoanalysis, I was actually seeing some patients when I was living in Los Angeles as part of this uh, like sort of part-time training. I was doing. And... Um, a little bit like uh, Tanya Lerman of Two Minds, like the, 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 I was interested in um, the experiential aspects of this form of knowledge and not just reading about it, but how it gets lived in clinical encounters. And I was trying to figure out how to do that in China. And I got an email from somebody who uh, works on addiction here in the U.S., but he's the director of these conferences in China that he flies to China to help direct that are teaching co- groups of 80 people, 60 or 60, 70 people who live in a hotel together for several days, how to recognize and respond to the group unconscious uh, by um, living in the here and now, like by exploring the tensions as they emerge in these groups and basically by stressing the groups out so that there's conflict and then people explode and then you look at what happened and that becomes a way of learning and living uh, a collective uh, a collective way of thinking about this unconscious, the, the way in which groups supposedly follow this um, this this group unconscious. And so um, I be, and it's under the name of uh, training and leadership and authority. And so the new project is really kind of interested in authority and the transmission of this knowledge. But the transmission of the knowledge is also always a moment to explore how in groups people experience sort of these you know race gender sexuality like all the all the complicated uh, ethnicity language 
of the process is is not outside of it. It actually is what fuels the transmission of the tradition. And so um, I've been attending some of those conferences as a member, but also on staff and kind of learning the tradition, but also really curious about how people come to understand these um, sort of encounters that are bringing together people from Taiwan with people from mainland China, US, China, uh, sort of lots of very complicated um, uh, sort of interactions. And then ultimately, I'm hoping to do the conferences, a series of conferences, and to use those to explore the way that psychoanalytic ideas come to be lived, but also to see how people make sense of them in their work units when they go back home after training them. So I'm hoping to have some field work that's based in workplaces. So it'll be a, a little bit about authority as it comes to be lived in, in, in work life in contemporary China. That sounds so fascinating. And I can I can hear a few resemblances with, with Zhang Li's work. Mm. Um, it's just really, it's really encouraging to hear so many anthropologists working in this field. Um, which is really, I think, is growing extensively, um, especially in China. And there's so much that that we don't really know about about how it's growing. Mm-hmm. And I think anthropology can really contribute to a lot in this field. Absolutely, yeah. And her, yeah, and her that her, her work that that study is fascinating. Just out, just out this this fall. <laughs> Well, that sounds like such an intrig- intriguing project to be working on. I and I imagine the listeners of this show really look forward to hearing about how it unfolds. But for now, I want to thank you, Nick, for putting time aside and for joining us today to talk about your work. Thank you so much for having me, Sue. This has been really fun. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone. Goodbye.